There are at least two verses that go along with this song. The first one is uh, Philippians 4.4, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again I say rejoice. And another one is from Job 23.10. says, He knoweth the way that I take. When he hath tried me, I shall come forth as gold.
You didn't know we had to add another 15 minutes to the church service to get me up and down from the pulpit. <laughs> I don't I don't uh, I don't make it a habit of memorizing my messages, okay? And because I, I'm not a, uh, I, I don't know, maybe it's, uh, as we do get older, maybe it's more difficult for us to memorize. My uncle used to tell a story about the two men he overheard talking about a, having a good memory and how he had managed to acquire a good memory. And then one gentleman said, he said, I've got a book that has taught me how to memorize, okay, things by association, and he says, and he turned to the other fellow, and he says, let me, let me share with you how it works. And he said, uh, okay. He said, uh, how, do you, how do you know what the name of the book is? And he says, that's easy. He says, what's the, what's the name, what do you call that plant that has a flower on one end and a long stem, and uh, it has uh, thorns on it? And the guy looked at him and said, a rose. And he said, that's it. A rose? What's the name of that book I have on memorization? <laughs> and he said, it works every time. <laughs> so, well, this morning, we're going to examine some of the interesting facts and miracles that surround our Lord and Savior's birth. We are past Christmas, but... We're going to be particularly looking at the uh, the Magi and their visit. And their visit came after Christ's birth. They weren't there the evening that the, that the shepherds were there. They were there sometime later. In the Eastern Orthodox Church, they have a, uh, a celebration uh, called the Epiphany. And that's when the wise men come to Bethlehem. And if you ever wondered where the 12 days of Christmas come from, it's because that that's always on the 6th of January, which is 12 days after Christmas. So as silly as that song is, there is a reason for the 12 days of Christmas. So, But we're going to be examining some of the facts that surround it. This is a message that I've had the opportunity to both make as a message and as a, and as a Sunday school class um, last year. Uh, Mona was gracious enough to request that I would give that class. And Ernie, this past year, had some questions about it. So it's a real privilege to be able to share that. And especially in Mona's case, because after she had requested it last year, if you remember, those of you who are in my class, we spent six weeks on uh, the uh, arrival of the Magi, and Mona missed all of them. But she came back immediately after I finished. So, but so I want you to know that uh, it's a it's a joy to have have uh, Mona in my class, even though she sometimes misses the ones that really matter. <laughs> just kidding, just kidding, just kidding. Okay, so what we're what we're doing today is we're going to examine these rather fascinating, miraculous, God-controlled miracles surrounding. The arrival of the Magi. It's hard for us to imagine that anything could rival in importance, interest, and excitement the events that occurred during the days and hours leading up to and immediately following the birth of our Lord 
Jesus Christ. I'm going to take a moment as a way of introduction to what our main topic of discussion is going to be, which is Bethlehem, Herod, and the Magi, by talking simply about something that's very, very interesting. And that is Joseph, by way of a curse, was ineligible to sit on the throne of David. And his progeny were not eligible. Now, what makes this interesting is you would ask yourself, David or Joseph and Jesus were were David as the progenitor. Okay, Joseph is a son of David. Christ was called thou son of David. Interestingly enough, if Jesus was Joseph's son, he would not be eligible to be the king of Israel. Now, let's look at that. In Isaiah 7:4, the prophet tells evil king Ahaz, therefore the Lord himself shall give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. King Ahaz didn't know it, but his progeny, six generations later, a King Coniah and all of King Coniah's descendants would be outcasts and that a blood curse would be leveled on all of them and all their descendants. Now, King Coniah is variously called King Jehoiachin in Second Chronicles and Jeconiah in First Chronicles and Coniah in Jeremiah. Ken Taylor, the translator of the Living Bible, noted that Coniah may be an abbreviation and is perhaps a disparaging nickname for Jeconiah and Jehoiachin and the other name of the Bible uses for him. It may be a name of derision. And the reason is because his name has an interesting uh, meaning. It's ironic and perhaps a utilization of divine sarcasm that the Lord would proclaim a blood curse on a king whose name means the Lord will establish my throne. In Jeremiah chapter 22, verse 28, God's word says, Is this man, Coniah, a despised, broken idol? Is he a vessel wherein is no pleasure? Wherefore are they cast out, he and his seed, and are cast into a land which they know not? O earth, 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 hear the word of the Lord. Thus saith the Lord, write ye this man childless, a man that shall not prosper in his days, for no man of his seed shall prosper, sitting upon the throne of David and ruling any more in Judah. The priests and scholars and scribes cast ashes on their heads and cried and bemoaned. This curse meant that no one from the house of David, all of King Coniah's descendants, upon being taken off to Babylon, would never sit on the throne again. Consequently, it would mean there would be no Messiah. Simply put, Joseph's genealogy comes by David through Solomon and subsequently the blood-cursed Jeconiah. 
Joseph cannot be the physical father of Jesus. His family tree was prevented from ever sitting on the throne of David as ruling and reigning kings by this blood-cursed Jeconiah. Joseph has the legal royal ancestry and consequently the right to be called a son of David, but not the right to be the king because of the blood curse. We may have asked ourselves occasionally, Herod is the king at the, at the time that Joseph and Mary and Jesus are here. Then why wouldn't there be some, why wasn't Joseph at least considered eligible He was not eligible because he was one of the seed of Jehoiachin or King Coniah. So he's not eligible. Jesus cannot be, excuse me, Joseph cannot be Jesus' father. He cannot be his physical father. His DNA prevents him from sitting on the throne of David. But Mary, on the other hand, is descendant from King David by way of Solomon's royal brother, the second surviving son of David and Bathsheba, Nathan. Nathan's bloodline is not cursed. Joseph is legally royal by his own genealogy and is technically royal because of a decree by the Lord given to Moses and recorded in Numbers 27. A group of brotherless, or a family without sons, came to Moses. Zalophaved, I believe. And they came and they said, we should, we're going to lose our inheritance because we don't have any brothers. We don't have a, we don't have a male heir. And they asked the question of Moses, what, it's not fair that we should lose our inheritance. So God, Moses took it under consideration and prayed to God about it. And God gave him the subsequent ruling that said that when they would marry, they would marry within their tribe. And when they married within their tribe, the man that they married would become the adopted son of their father. He would also become his son-in-law and would receive the dowry. And that way they would maintain that, that uh, inheritance within the family. By this God-inspired Mosaic law and the subsequent and lawful Jewish tradition, Joseph is Mary's father, Heli's, adopted son. But because he is betrothed to Mary, he is also Heli's son-in-law. An interesting position, legally and traditionally. He is both a, an adopted son and a son-in-law. Joseph acquires a dowry of all that belongs to Mary, lock, stock, and barrel, including her royal lineage. Therefore, our Lord Savior Jesus Christ has a miraculous and perfect royal lineage and a miraculous and perfect right to rule and reign The Lord Jesus Christ has an adoptive father who is triply three times royal by lineage, by adoption, and by marriage, and a physical mother who is royal by her own lineage and in her own right, and Jesus is also the divine prophesied son of promise 
by his divine Father, the Holy Spirit. That's a miracle that could only be accomplished by God. Of course, there are many more, but we are going to concern ourselves with three today. Bethlehem, Herod the king, and the Magi from the east. In Matthew, beginning in chapter 2, verse 1, God's word says, Now when Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, there came wise men from the east to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he that is born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and are come to worship him. When Herod the king had heard these things, he was troubled and all of Jerusalem with him. And when he had gathered all the chief priests and scribes of the people together, he demanded of them where Christ should be born. And they said unto him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet, And thou, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, art thou, or art not the least among the princes of Judah? For out of thee shall come a governor that shall rule my people Israel. Then Herod, when he had privily called the wise men, inquired of them diligently what time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search diligently for the young child. And when you have found him, bring me word again that I may come and worship him also. When they had heard the king, they departed. And lo, the star which they, which they saw in the east went before them till it came and stood over where the young child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceeding great joy. And when they were there, when they were come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary, his mother, and fell down and worshipped him. And when they had opened their treasures, they presented unto him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. Interestingly enough, These were Gentiles who recognized the Messiah. They were willing to, if you will, come home. Even though it was coming home to a strange land, it was coming home to the realization that the King of Kings and Lord of Lords was being born in a manger in a town called Bethlehem. In verse 5 of Matthew 2, the chief priests and scribes quote Micah 5.2. But you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one to be ruler in Israel, whose going forth are from old, from everlasting. Interesting, and we'll note this later, their callous indifference. Are they excited? Are they thrilled? No, they just kind of rhetorically quote Micah. Dr. Strong, in his marvelous, exhaustive concordance, informs us that Bethlehem means the house of bread. This place, this house of bread, would be our precious Redeemer's prophetic and actual birthplace. This is incredible and miraculously appropriate. I like to ask the question, how long does it take to make bread? hour, hour and a half? No. From seed to loaf, it takes nine months, remarkably. So if you can sit and perhaps think about the fact that that's the same amount of time for a human gestation, 
You can cogitate on that for a moment. While pondering that, consider what Luke tells us in the second chapter of his gospel in verses 6 and 7. So it was that while they were there, the days were completed for her to be delivered. And she brought forth her son, her firstborn son, and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. Strong's Concordance defines the word, the Greek word manger used here as a crib used for fodder. A manger is a feeding trough. A feeding trough is where nourishment that is essential, that must be eaten, is freely placed and given. What a curious, curious thing. In Matthew chapter 4, verse 4, our Lord and Savior says, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Christ the Lord was born in the city that is the house of bread and placed in a manger, which is a feeding trough. In John chapter 6, beginning in verse 48, Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and are dead. This is the bread which comes down from heaven that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I shall give is my flesh, which I shall give for the life of the world. Born in a city known as the house of bread. Laid in a feeding trough where nourishment is provided. I am the bread of life, Jesus said. This is not coincidence. This is divine providence. Next we should consider Herod the king. King Herod the Great was the son of a man called the Antipater, the Idumean. Antipater was a cunning, wealthy, and ambitious man who was governor by appointment to Palestine. Herod the Great, more appropriately titled Herod the Terrible, was appointed governor or prefect of Palestine by his father, Antipater. Herod was charming in manners and a master of statecraft and highly ambitious Utterly ruthless. He survived Jewish challenges to his rule by way of his skillful politicking with the Roman authorities. When he was 25 years old, Herod the Great was commissioned by Caesar Augustus and Mark Anthony to fight and defeat the Parthian Empire's excursions into Assyria and Palestine. It is interesting to note historically that when Mark Anthony sided with Cleopatra against Octavian, Herod actually chose the wrong side and chose to ally himself with Cleopatra and Mark Antony. Now, you have to be a master of statecraft to have done that and lost and then still been appointed king over Palestine. It was a pretty remarkable achievement and a testament to his master, uh, mastery of politicking. 
Octavian commissioned Herod to fight the Parthians. They invaded Palestine periodically and were a thorn in the Roman Empire's side. Herod exterminated his enemies with the callous casualness of an annoyed man swatting listless flies. He murdered one of his wives and three of his sons, and he also poisoned his own uncle. He had all the male children, two years and under, in Bethlehem murdered, and all the surrounding areas murdered, including one of his own sons. The particular act of brutal murder of his own son, notwithstanding the horrendous murders of the children in and around Bethlehem, was an attempt to rid himself of any rival claimant to the throne of Israel, whether it be his son or someone else's. These deeds invoked a response by none other than Caesar Augustus himself. Augustus is quoted by James Usher in his book, The Annals of the World, as having said, it is better to be Herod's sow than Herod's son. What a frightening man he was. I was asked after the first service this morning, why didn't the Jews rebel? It was because Herod was so ruthless and so frightening, he terrified the population utterly. In Matthew chapter 6, beginning in verse 16, God's word tells us, Then Herod, when he saw that he was mocked of the wise men, was exceeding wroth and sent forth and slew all the children that were in Bethlehem and in all the coasts thereof from two years old and under, according to the time which he had diligently inquired of the wise men. Then was fulfilled that which was spoken by Jeremy the prophet, saying, In Ramah, There was a voice heard, lamentations and weeping and great mourning. Rachel weeping for her children and would not be comforted because they are not. Uh, I'll take just a moment here to maybe share something with you that's really very interesting. Verse 18 is quoted from Jeremiah 31.15. Thus saith the the Lord, A voice was heard in Ramah, lamentation and bitter weeping. Rachel, weeping for her children, refused to be comforted for her children because they were not. So if we examine the interpretation of this scripture, when did Rachel weep and when was she not comforted? Well, in Genesis 30, verse 1, God's word says, And when Rachel saw that she bare Jacob no children... Rachel envied her sister and said unto Jacob, Give me children or else I die. Rachel is jealous. She is depressed and literally overwhelmed with anxiety. She is crying to Jacob that he must impregnate her with a baby or she will die. Ken Taylor provides an interesting translation of Jacob's response in verse 2. Jacob flew into a ridge. Am I God, he flared. He is the one who is responsible for your barrenness, not me. Now, Rachel is jealous, depressed, debilitated by anxiety, and is utterly uncomforted 
And all of this because her children are not. Rachel is not troubled because her children are dead. She is comfortless and hopeless because she hasn't any children. This incident relates to Herod's murder plot in Ramah or Bethlehem because after the slaughter of all the children, the survivors were angry, weeping, filled with anxiety, comfortless and hopeless like Rachel. But the answer is in the next two verses in Jeremiah 31. This is what the Lord says. A voice was heard in Ramah, a lament with bitter weeping. Rachel weeping for her children, refusing to be comforted for her children because they are no more. This is what the Lord says. Keep your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears. For the reward for your work will come. This is the Lord's declaration. And your children will return from the enemy's land. There is hope for your future. This is the Lord's declaration and your children will will return to their own territory. Symbolically, the Lord is omniscient and he knows the end from the beginning and is symbolically telling them, God knows the things that Rachel doesn't know. He is telling those of the the, the tragedy that has befallen them that their children have been taken into an enemy land which is a symbol of death, but they will return to their own territory which is heaven. God knows the things that Rachel doesn't know. God will give Rachel two sons. One of them, Joseph, will be his father's favorite. So, Rachel, there is hope for the future. To the families of Bethlehem, there is hope. The enemy's land is death, and your children will live in their own territory. That is the bosom of Abraham in heaven. Your children are safe, and you will be reunited with them there. Herod the Great married a total of 10 women who bore him at least 15 children. He rebuilt the temple to gain the Jews' favor, but added kindling to the fire of their hatred by also building temples to pagan gods. Most interesting of all about Herod was that he was not a Jew. He was an Idumean an Edomite from the line of Esau. He professed he was a convert to Judaism, but was not a Hebrew by birth. His conversion was politically motivated, not spiritually discerned. The children of Israel said Herod was a half-Jew. They criticized him. Consequently, the Jews knew he had no hereditary or God-ordained right to sit on the throne of David. None. They hated him very much, but feared him even more. Herod bequeathed that a thousand of the most prominent men in Jerusalem be murdered at his death to ensure that there would be mourning at his funeral and in Jerusalem when he was buried. We should bookmark a place in our brain and remember, Herod was appointed king of the Jews by Augustus Caesar, Mark Anthony, and the Roman Senate. As I mentioned earlier, Herod was called Herod the Great, but history reveals he was actually Herod the Terrible. His reaction to the coming of the Messiah was kill him, murder him. The 
reaction of the chief priests and scribes was indifference. We look at them and we see how they they only mentioned it by rote. Oh, Micah said this, and so that's where he will be. But absolute, you would think that they would have the joy of the shepherds. No, no. Now we come to the Magi from the east. Interestingly, nowhere in the Bible is it stated how many Magi actually came to Jerusalem in search of Jesus. We don't actually know how many there were. Some traditions suggest as many as 12 to 14 came. Their means of transportation, while represented here in front of me by camels, is never mentioned in God's word. We don't know. It may very well have been camels, but we don't know. In the New Testament times, magi from the east would have been presumed to have come from Parthia. The true and most respected magi were inhabitants of the Parthian Empire. The Parthian Empire occupied the area we know today as Iraq, Iran, much of Afghanistan, and further east to India and south to the Indian Ocean. The Parthian Empire was a constant thorn in the side of the Roman Empire, continuously warring over the buffer zone eastern provinces of Assyria, Lebanon, and Palestine. It is remarkable to think that these same areas are in the headlines almost daily. The Magi were priest kings who were king makers. Their job was to educate and approve of the kings of the various provinces of the Parthian Empire. Their priesthood was recognized throughout the world for their expert knowledge and study of science, agriculture, mathematics, history, and astronomy. These men were recognized. They had begun in Babylon. The Magi were especially noted for their proficiency as astrologers and their ability to interpret dreams. We will recall Nebuchadnezzar's dream in chapter 2 of Daniel. All of, the, all of the wise men, the Magi, went to Nebuchadnezzar and said, well, we'll be happy to interpret your dream if you'll just tell us what it is. And Nebuchadnezzar said, no, no. You tell me not only what the interpretation is, but you tell me what the dream is. Because it's gone from me. We know that Daniel saved the Magi from Nebuchadnezzar's death sentence by pleading for them and in turn correctly interpreting the king's dream. And I mentioned, incidentally, when you go to Daniel chapter 2, you'll see that the satraps were trying to kill Daniel pretty much continuously. They're not Magi. We were the politicians. It is believed by many ancient and modern commentators that Daniel shared Holy Scripture with the Magi and that that is where they became aware of the prophecies regarding the coming of the Messiah, the King of the Jews, the Son of God. So the Magi may very well have had a a presentation of the prophecies regarding the coming of a king who would supersede just being the king of the Jews, he would be the Messiah of the world. 
it is probable that the office Daniel accepted in Daniel 5.11 was that of Rabmag, chief of the Magi. Anyone who would be able to interpret a king's dream that he doesn't even tell you what it is must be have a very special relationship with the one and only God. No Parthian king was ever crowned without having gone through the education and approval provided by the Magi. The Parthian Empire had many provinces in it, and each was ruled by a king chosen by the rabbi. The king of all the Parthian provinces was chosen by the Magi from the provincial kings, and interestingly enough, was designated the king of kings. (coughs) Curious. Many Magi may have been God-fearing Gentiles, not unlike Cornelius and Lydia in Acts chapter 10 and 16. We hear the Magi ask Herod in Matthew chapter 2, verse 2, Where is he that is born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and are come to worship him. The Magi didn't ask this question casually. This was calculated. The Magi asked this question and they asked it in that way specifically to get under Herod's skin. They knew that Herod was not born a king. They knew Herod was an appointed king. And they were there not to see an appointed king or to see one of Herod's children. They were there as royal kingmakers to worship the king, the Messiah. Where is he that is born king of the Jews? When Herod the king had heard these things, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. Why was Jerusalem troubled? Because when Herod was angry or upset, people died. It is interesting to note that the very first question in the New Testament is... Where is he that is born king of the Jews? In Genesis 3.9 is the first question in the Old Testament. And the Lord called unto Adam and said unto him, Where art thou? The first question in the Old Testament is God seeking after the sinner. And the first question in the New Testament is the sinner seeking after God. Incidentally, in Genesis 3.1... Genesis 3.1 is not a question. It is an erotesis, if you will. And that's a 25-cent word. It is an interrogation, a closed-end statement seeking an assumed response. Why was Herod agitated? Because he was not born king of the Jews. He was appointed a king by the, uh, by, uh, to be king of the Jews by the Romans. God's word tells us in verse 3 that Herod was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. Herod's temper and reputation for murder caused everybody in Jerusalem to fear his wrath. And now rumors abounded that a rival for the throne had been born. In verse 4 of Matthew 2, God's word says, And when he had heard all the chief priests and scribes of the people uh, together, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. So they said to him, in utter indifference, in Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet, 
But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not the least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Once again, a matter of utter indifference to them. Not, oh, you must hurry there. The Messiah has been born. This is a sign that should tell... doesn't say that in my Bible. It says they were utterly indifferent, not willing to go beyond the mere recitation of Scripture. No excitement or even curiosity at the potential arrival of their own Messiah. Absolute indifference is what the Word of God shares with us as the reaction of these scholars to the announcement of the birth of Him who is born King of the Jews. Matthew 2, 7 and 8 relates, Then Herod, when he had secretly caused the wise men to determine from them what time the star appeared, and he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the young child, and when you have found him, bring back word to me that I may come and worship him also. We know Herod's plan. Where is Christ to be born and when did the star appear that indicates the place and time of the new king's birth? Herod wants not to worship the babe, but to murder him in an attempt to rid himself of his God-ordained rival. In Matthew chapter 2, verse 9, God's word says, When they had heard the king, they departed. And lo, the star which they saw in the east went before them till it came and stood over where the young child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceeding great joy. The the living Bible translates this as their joy knew no bounds. Uh, The uh, Holman Christian Standard Bible translates they were overjoyed beyond measure. And then in verses 11 and 12, And when they were come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary his mother and fell down and worshipped him. And when they had opened their treasures... They presented unto him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned of God in a dream that they should not return to Herod, they departed into their own country another way. Gold, frankincense and myrrh. The Bible says that the Magi fell down and worshipped our Lord, the baby born king of the Jews, the redeemer of all who placed their faith in him, the king of the Magi, could not coronate, or the king the Magi could not coronate or choose, for this child was the true king of kings, the fulfillment of the law and the prophets and all the holy scriptures, the very son of God. The one foretold by prophecy to be the lamb of God which taketh away the sin of the world. The Magi offered and laid before Christ the king gifts of gold, frankincense and myrrh. They offered him gold as the true king of kings, paying him tribute as he is always as is always associated with royalty. They gave him frankincense as the son of God, for they honored God in prayer with the smoke of incense. They provided him myrrh as a man that should die, for myrrh was used in the ointment of body. But this man would not die for himself. His death was to redeem sinners from sin and hell. Sinners like you and me. In Isaiah 60 verse 6, this prophecy regarding the Messiah's gifts omits myrrh 
and only says gold and incense. Why? Because in Isaiah's prophecy, he saw Christ's second advent when he would come not to die, but to reign for a thousand years. In this message, we have seen examples of the three basic responses that people made to Jesus when he was on earth. The same three responses that people throughout history have made to the Lord and still make today. Some, like Herod, are hostile to him. Some, like the priests and scribes, are indifferent. And it should be noted that hostility and indifference are actually two different sides of the same coin. The coin is the currency of rejection of the gift of salvation. But some, like the Magi, fell down and worship and adore him. They had gone to a far-off land to truly come home, if you will. My uncle, Dr. Jack MacArthur, used to relate a story told by an honored evangelist by the name of Brown, who is now in heaven. Evangelist Brown had conducted a revival meeting in a town in Wisconsin, and sometime later he received a letter from an old man by the name of Stuart, telling him that his boy had left home, and that he did not know when he would return. The letter said, Mr. Brown, you travel a good deal, and if you ever see my boy, tell him that his father loves him, and that his mother is dying and wants him to come home. Two years later, Mr. Brown went back to that town, and the first man he saw as he stepped off the train was old Mr. Stewart. It was a cold, raw day, and Mr. Brown said, Why, Mr. Stewart, what are you doing here? The old man said, I'm waiting for my boy. Hasn't he returned yet? asked Mr. Brown. No, replied Stuart, but I'm sure he will. It was 11 years before Mr. Brown again went to this same town, and as he stepped down from the platform, the first person he saw was a much older Mr. Stuart. His hair was snowy white, and his brow was wrinkled, and his form was now bent. Mr. Brown greeted Mr. Stuart, but the old man had forgotten him. Mr. Brown made himself known to the old man, Stuart, and asked him why he was there. The old man said, I'm waiting for my boy. We haven't heard anything from him, but I'm sure he is coming, and I thought he might be here this morning. Just then, Mr. Brown lifted up his eyes and saw a stalwart young man coming down the steps of the train and said to himself, if I were not sure the boy was dead, I would say that He was the man's son. But the other man had eyes that had seen that young man too. The frail old man dropped his cane and scuttled as fast as his tottering limbs would let him. And in less time than I can take to tell it, the boy was tenderly encompassed by the loving embrace of his faithful father's arms. The old man, white-haired, sobbed out, Oh, my son, thank God you've come home. Thank God Almighty you have come home. Then turning to Mr. Brown, the old man said, Mr. Brown, this is my son. I would have waited for my son until I died. 
Something like that is God's love for you. And a yearning something like that is what God has in his heart for you. He has been waiting for some of you for 10, 20, 30, 40, 50, or 60 years. And you haven't come. But if Christ was made flesh and dwelt among us, and if God loves us like a father, and is a God like the humble God of the manger of Bethlehem, and the suffering Savior God of Calvary, and the glorious living God of the empty tomb, I think you will want to come home to him right now. Will you come home and accept the gift of God? The salvation provided by Christ the Lord for all who believe. Salvation from sin's wages. The pay for sin, which is death and hell for all eternity. Will you be hostile, hating Christ and his gift of salvation? Will you be indifferent to this most precious gift? Will you surrender, fall down, worship and adore him and accept Christ as Savior in your own heart right now? Will you come home right now? We're playing the hymn softly and tenderly, Jesus is calling. Indeed, that's the case. You know, this wonderful church that we are in preaches the gospel without apology, excuse, or excuse every single Sunday. And we have an invitation and it's a and it's it's available for you right now. And that's a fourfold invitation. If you don't know Christ as Savior, you are a heartbeat away from eternity. An eternity with Christ or an eternity in hell. It's as simple as that. The second invitation we have is for those of you who know Christ as Savior but have fallen away. And you need to get something straight between you and your Savior. You need to turn and go the other way. The altar is available for you right now. The third invitation we have is baptism. Are you born again, but you haven't followed the Lord in baptism? Well, come and we'll talk about it. We'll we'll get that taken care of. The fourth invitation is for church membership. Are you a wandering soul? Are you not a member? Don't you need to have a spiritual home? If you're born again and know the Lord Jesus Christ, we would be honored to have you as a member of our church. Let's bow our heads for a moment. Gracious God and Father, we thank you for the miraculous birth of your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. We thank you for allowing us to have the privilege to come and to be born again and to accept that gracious gift. This morning, Heavenly Father, I pray that you would just tenderize the hearts of those that are here. And if they need to make one of these four decisions, salvation, recommitment and rededication, baptism, church membership, that you would just touch their hearts and they would be sensitive to the prompting of the Holy Spirit. Now, if you would, turn in your hymnals to page 374, softly and tenderly, Let's stand and sing while we make this invitation available to all those who would come home this morning.
someone would have the opportunity to come. Jesus is waiting for you to come home. He loves you beyond measure. Don't put this decision off to a nebulous tomorrow that may never come. Come home now. Gracious God and Father, we thank you for those in attendance this morning and we pray that the message has fallen on their hearts and it would touch them. We ask now that you would bless us in everything we do and say and that you would be glorified and magnified in everything. And in Jesus' precious name we ask these things. Amen. You are dismissed.